This is MC Fireside Chats, a weekly show devoted to the outdoor hospitality industry, hosted by Brian Searle and Kara Sismadia. You'll hear from special guests that focus on topics to help your business succeed, all backed by Modern Campground, the most innovative news source in the industry. everybody to another episode of MC Fireside Chats. My name is Brian Searle with Insider Perks. We are normally joined by Kara Sismadia from the Canadian Camping and RV Council. She had a little bit of a family emergency, so everything's okay though, as far as I know. Our thoughts are with her, of course, as she goes through that. And then we'll also be joined by Ruben Martinez here, who's a regular panelist on our glamping show, running a couple minutes late. And maybe we'll have Zach here too. I don't know. Did he just... Oh, there's Ruben. He popped in. So maybe Zach will come to you. Well, we will come in and out. But we do have uh, we do have David Smith here from Outside Capital, who is a regular panelist with us on the glamping episode, as well as Connor Schwab from Sage Outdoor Advisory. And we've got two special guests for you today. Kate Morrill is going to talk to us a little bit about what her company does. And Whitney Scott, who has 10 different titles. I'm going to cheat and look at LinkedIn, Whitney. COO of Terramore Outdoor Resorts, of course, which is what she's here to talk about, but also recently promoted to the Senior VP of Strategy at Campgrounds of America. Is that right? Did I read that directly off LinkedIn? That's great. All right. Good. So welcome, everybody. I appreciate you all being here. So we're going to have a nice discussion about glamping. I want to take a minute to uh, to thank our sponsor for the show, which is Horizon Outdoor Hospitality, as soon as I find their glamping or their overlay here. So for those of you who don't know, Horizon Outdoor Hospitality is a management company for outdoor hospitality for campgrounds, RV parks, glamping resorts, which we're going to talk about today. So if you are in need of someone to take over operations, help you with some marketing or advertising or accounting or all the things that those management companies specialize in, then definitely reach out to Scott and his team at Horizon Outdoor Hospitality. We're grateful to have them as a sponsor for our show. And then the last thing before we get into this is we will talk, we're going to have a new segment here at the end of the show, probably the last five minutes or so, given how the conversation goes. But it's another secret project that I'm working on called Camp Vantage. And it's just a segment we're going to talk a little about AI and tech and some big announcements that were made yesterday is what we're going to focus on today from Bing and this morning in Paris from Google. So but let's jump into glamping. I want to start with Kate, just because Kate is in London or UK. The UK is it actually London or is it another city? I'm in the UK, yeah, Somerset. All right, Somerset. How far that is that from West. London for the people who? The West Country. All right. <laughs> I was in London last year and it was really crowded, and I definitely need to go back and see more of the country. So it's on my list of things to do. But Kate, tell us what you do. I work right here in the UK, specifically in the glamping industry, and alternative accommodations. Uh, I've been directly involved in the industry for, I think this is my 13th year now. I started to work with a rental agency and help landowners and existing operators to diversify into our sector. So if they want to add some different accommodations or they want to start a brand new site somewhere, I'll be with them along the journey and help them along the way as a consultant. And I've also got another business, which is the design side where we design accommodations as well. Now, we've talked briefly about this with some other guests on the show as far as the UK glamping market kind of being way ahead, I think, of where we are in the United States and Canada, for example. We're playing catch up very quickly, but I think you're definitely still years ahead of us, I would say, conservatively speaking. And that that plays to the evolution of some of the accommodations that you have, as well as, I think, some of the land uses that you've used over there. You talk about being a consultant for people who want to add accommodations to different types of land. 
Is yeah. that something that you've seen evolve as more people look to get into glamping beyond the oh, traditional caravan parks? Absolutely transformed in the last sort of five to seven years, really. Glamping's become an alternative accommodations of which I would put glamping under that umbrella is being looked at by so many different business models now and so many different types of landowners. So when I was working with Quality and Earth, my background is small, unique boutique, indie, indie boutique business models. But since I left Quality and Earth five years ago, I now get approached by estates, country estates, hotel groups, holiday parks, and investors that would normally invest in properties and, and that sort of portfolio are now looking at more rural business models as well. And they're definitely looking to shake up the holiday park sector of the market. It's going to be a really interesting few years ahead, actually, here in the UK. Yeah, it's really fascinating to me how you can take a business that's not traditionally viewed as accommodations. Like we've, I've read a lot about wineries and I think I read about a brewery in the UK a year or so ago that was adding accommodations to the back. So if you were drunk, you didn't have to go home, which is to me a brilliant idea, right? It keeps people around. It gives you another source of income to in, insure yourself or insulate yourself. And obviously there are people doing it just beyond wineries and breweries, but it's really fascinating to me, the flexibility that some of these accommodations, whether they're on wheels or not on wheels or you can tear them down in the winter or you don't, just gives people that diversify their income. It's a very flexible business to get into, really. No matter whether, I mean, you know, some people have got a winter business already, so they don't particularly want the accommodations to be running throughout the winter months or it doesn't suit the climate or the location, things like that. So what's really interesting is we can shape the accommodation to suit any particular business model or location. So it's such a flexible thing that glamping really, you know, so we could have tents that come down at the end of summer, but we'd have tents that stay up or winter that you wouldn't necessarily want to rent them out in the UK. We haven't got our heads around winter, winter camping here in the UK. We just can't, we just can't get our heads around camping. I have a Facebook group and it's got about 6,000 people in it with from all around the world. But somebody posted recently from Canada, actually, that they wanted to insulate their domes and spray insulation in the domes so they could rent them out throughout the winter. And it gets to minus something silly. That I should, it definitely gets it. to minus silly. Yes. Sometimes it's minus silly. And I thought. We just wouldn't bother here in the UK. We'd close the whole thing down. We'd, you know, we'd mothball it and we, we'd go and do something else for into months. But you guys are hardcore. <laughs> but it is interesting, though. I mean, eventually, if they can insulate, not just insulate them, you know, temporarily, but if they can provide robust accommodations where you can do ice fishing or that's near ski resorts or that there are opportunities, not everywhere and all the time. But there yeah. are a lot of people who will go snowshoeing, who will go out hiking in the winter. Like I do all that stuff near Calgary and Banff where I'm at. Yeah. Oh, it's maybe in Scotland, but we don't have, we don't have the nice winter weather in the most of the UK, unless you're up in Scotland or the Welsh mountains or Snowdonia. It's like it, just get, it just gets cold and drizzly really. So yeah. I, most of us just can't get our heads around a, a winter glamping holiday in a tent. It makes sense. Yeah. Last question for you real quick. And then obviously we want to have you jump in the conversation as we talk to everybody else. Sure. Is there something that, that you've seen that is, that you've got, that's got you really excited from an accommodation standpoint or somebody who's turning something cool into something you didn't think possible? So a colleague of mine here in the UK that's starting to bring some different designs of tents into the UK and really quite innovative which is reflected in the name of the company, actually. So I'm quite excited about what she's doing. I'll be honest with you, I don't want to blow my own trumpet, but I'm quite excited what I'm doing as well, because we're shaking up the treehouse world and coming out with 
more contemporary designs rather than these twee rustic tree houses. We're sort of pushing them more along a very contemporary line as well. And then there's a, there's another company. I haven't seen what they're producing yet, but they're working with some estates here in the UK and I love their designs. They're fabulous. Am I allowed to mention them? Yeah, uh, great. Nomadic Resorts, they do some really cool designs. I love their work. So there's some innovation happening and it, we need it really here in the UK because we have been going quite a while now. And, and, and especially when you've been in the industry as long as I have, you've seen it all come and go. I've seen so many suppliers come and go and try and shake things up by mashing two structures together or trying to get a bit clever with, with the design and bolting something else on. And you just know it's not going to last really. The industry needs really good solid designs now and some good solid design content to take it forward. And it started to happen now. It's really exciting. Yeah, that's fascinating from my perspective. I'm sure Ruben, with all his years of experience, can see this too. And by the way, Ruben, Kate missed you in London at the glamping show. She was supposed Hi, to meet you. You need to fly back out there in September. We were talking about that before you came. I've been, show. I've just been there the whole time. I haven't left. I've been looking for you the whole time. Kate, he's all right. Anyway, but yeah. So let's. So Ruben knows this. I think in the beginning of, I think what we see over here, or we have seen over here in the, in the industry, as far as accommodations, is there's the typical bell tents and the yurts and the. I don't know if I want to call them common because they are really good accommodations and I don't want to notch them down any, but then at the beginning of any industry, and then there's, as we go along and more deeper into it, there's more innovation and more suppliers and more people get into it with different and new ideas. But then as you're saying, I think there's that trap of we've been in it seven, 10, 15, 20 years. How do we continue to evolve it then? It's almost like the middle is the sweet spot. Is that fair, Ruben? Yeah. Or? And I'd be curious to see what, you know, Whitney, David, Connor, Kate, what you guys think about yeah, this. Everybody, but, of course, toss it. We were talking about this a bit earlier where, you know, years ago, one of the things that the association was, I will not call it task, but suggested that we do among several things, standardization, but the other one was this definition of glamping. And at that point in time, we thought that would actually be a harsh thing to do because we just didn't really know what was going to happen and to define a unit type, or it has to be this exact unit with this exact space with this exact without knowing what was going to unfold we thought would be a little bit of a dangerous concept and as we now fast forward to where we're at now and we look at for example the glamping show and seeing the different types of units that are there the different types of design that that keeps popping up year in and year out i think what we've seen is that specifically here too that the entrepreneurial spirit has really taken a hold and people are coming up with some really exciting things. And that's also what the user demands in many different ways, right? Glamping is synonymous with unique and different and experiential. And, you know, if we just keep to bell tents and that's it, you know, the, it's hard for the industry as a whole to grow. So I don't think there's any danger in the amount of innovation and the different types of structures. I think there's complications, you know, zoning and permissions and, you know, this fine line between maybe what is glamping versus what isn't, you know, depending on who you talk to. But I think for right now, that chaotic momentum and the different types of innovations that are coming up, I think are a good thing, you know, complicated thing, but I think still a good thing, especially for an industry that is still trying to define itself still, you know, still putting on, you know, the shoes that it might wear for the next leg of the race. And then, you know, it's going to have another leg of the race. But anyway, yeah, just curious what you guys think about that. I'd love to touch on the entrepreneur spirit for a second, because what you're talking about is obviously very critical and very important. And 
I'm going to toss it to Whitney and get her thoughts on that because I know Toby brought that up as part of her keynote at last year's KOA convention. And obviously there's definitely an entrepreneurial spirit to starting a brand new brand called Terramore Outdoor Resorts and all that goes into that. So Whitney, do you want to just briefly tell us, unless somebody else had something they wanted to add to Ruben's point, but do you want to just tell us what, for those who don't know what Terramore Outdoor Resorts is? Sure. Terramore Outdoor Resorts is a new vertical from KOA that is a high-end kind of glamping resort we call it an outdoor resort and you know i think it is that startup mentality which is very much to what ruben was talking about is that the industry the glamping industry is very much in this innovation stage and to have been asked to define it probably would have shut down some of the opportunity and future success that we will see i think is that you part of what people are coming for is something unique and if we shut down creativity it would potentially shut down our market terramore you know is an evolution of glamping that we already do on our kway campgrounds and it was just what we saw is that even within glampers there's different market sets and what we have on our campgrounds does it meet certain people's criteria when they're looking for glamping options some there's like a leisure traveler that doesn't feel like a campground can provide a glamping experience and yet we felt like we could really utilize our knowledge in outdoor hospitality on campgrounds and build this really great experience or set for glamping and my light just turned off because of sustainability and the ability <laughs> or lights just recognize when no one's moving so it's it's been really a fun project to see how our knowledge base of 60 years can infiltrate a new vertical and accelerate to your point brian that startup mentality that a lot of mature businesses don't lean into because they've just been doing the same thing for so long. So what would you say sets Terramore apart from a traditional campground? And of course, KOA a little bit, but campgrounds in general, right? Because obviously there's a difference with experience. You're talking about in some ways a different market, but you're targeting luxury or higher end, especially specifically with Terramore and obviously a different amenity set and different accommodation set. And so what in your mind sets that apart? Yeah, that's a really great question, Brian. So when we look at the Terramore experience, one, it's accommodation only. And when we look at traditional campgrounds, we're talking about mixed accommodations. So RVers, tenters, and accommodations. And I think sometimes what happens is some market, some people in those market might be like, I just want to be with the glamping community. I'm not necessarily... I, I don't want to be next to an RV while other people are like, why would that matter? And so one, it's an accommodation only brand. And then there's a lot more experiential elements that we're putting into that outdoor resort is, you know, there's a lodge, there's food that as the brand grows, we're, you know, that would be a continual experience set that you wouldn't necessarily find on a campground. So just some standardizations of the experiential set outside of just the accommodation itself. Are there things, and we hear this word, like we've talked about it a lot on this show, and I know Randy Henderson uses it quite a bit, experiential hospitality, but obviously it's all over hotels and it's a buzzword. 
these days. And I think it will continue to pick up steam because obviously there's definitely some meaning behind it, as you're indicating. In your mind, what is important to focus on as far as experiential hospitality? Because that's a big word, right? What really sets, what really goes into the thinking or the experiences that Terramore offers? There's a lot of research that goes in be, behind what Terramore offers. So when we we're specific about this brand, looking at what that those experiential sets are was very intentional. You know, the pool environment, the customer service environment we provide, you know, we have a, what we call is like an outdoor concierge that we call the outfitter that we is the, probably the highest, hardest hire ever on a property because we require them to not only know the area, but be able to adapt experiences to our guests. So what they're looking for, maybe by who they're coming with or what they're looking to do. So they have to be really in depth, not only from how do I communicate what I know, but how do I listen and evaluate what those people want to experience and then provide a lot of different types of experience from wood shopping to oyster, fresh oysters from the island. We want to make sure that you have a multiple of experiences to choose from. Only our resort could provide you. And you're right. That is like, I'll, I, just being as a business owner, right? That's one of the most hardest qualities to find in somebody because I feel like it's so rare. There are a lot of people who are super smart who can memorize or learn training, but there are very few people who can actively listen and adapt that stuff. And those people you hang on to forever. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Retention, and then we can all talk about how hard it is to keep employed. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other topic we won't get yeah. into now. What are, what? Are, last question here before we open up to the group to maybe ask you some questions or just what's new in the whole glamping space as we normally do on the show. What are some of the amenities that you found that, that are really popular among your guests at Terramore that you're proud of? I really think we underestimated how much our glamping, our guests would really utilize the food offerings, especially that we were in a location like Bar Harbor that has some of the best seafood in America. We didn't expect people to eat at the resort at night as much as they do. And I think it is a reflection on how people glamp. You know, they're going out during the day and really experiencing the nature that we're hopefully providing them or in that area and the point of interest. And they're excited by the opportunity to have an elevated food experience at the resort. So we were thinking, you know, if the average day was three nights that they'd eat maybe one night and go out too. And it's the reverse, which is a pleasant surprise, but definitely something we didn't expect. Interesting. Yeah. I would have thought the same. All right. Let me open it up to the group here. You guys yeah, got some glamping. Go for it. Brian, I got a question for David, because I think this is always an important part as we get into 2023. You got a really hard math equation problem for you, David. But any insight, because at the end of the day, what happens within this industry is built and supported by the capital infusions and people placing, you know, educated bets and investments within small, medium, and large projects. Just curious, 
the thought around, sorry, some background noise, thought around what you've seen in 2023 so far within your network around investments and interest and, and anything within the world that you operate in and what do you think that's signaling so far? Because we can place bets as we've done every single year. Here's what 2023 might shape out and look like, but until, you know, until it starts to come to fruition, we don't know. So just wanted to ping you with that one. Yeah, no, it's a great question. You know, I think back Ruben to the glamping show last year. And I think I said on stage there that, you know, the elephant in the room in you know, any sort of real estate or real estate adjacent business, which, in, which includes glamping really, is that interest rates are at levels that we haven't seen yet. We haven't seen for 10 plus years. And that we're in a new reality that most of the hospitality real estate world hasn't had to grapple with for a long time. And I think I also like jokingly referred to the, I think it was a comment Warren Buffett famously made about interest rates being that, you know, the chain that holds every asset class down. It's an inescapable force when you think about valuation and capital availability. So what does that mean? You know, what's changed since then? I think if you zoom out from our space and think holistically about the sort of tone in the real estate capital markets today, 2023 so far, you know, it's not really a great story. There, there's a lot of, you know, even if you kind of just a casual observer of those markets, you may have heard about, you know, massive redemptions from some of the bigger, you know, private REITs, like the ones that Blackstone and Brookfield manage anyone who's been in the market to buy a home, you know, in that period of time knows, you know, knows how much harder it is to afford real estate when rates are high. So I think the tone generally hospitality real estate right now is definitely a lot more muted than it was a year ago. It's harder to get deals done. There's fewer financing options for traditional hotel buyers. The folks that are getting financing are paying significantly higher costs of capital than, you know, they would have had to deal with a year ago. And so the reality is that even if, you know, even if you have the financing available to you, you may find that a deal that kind of penciled out 12 months ago, doesn't pencil out now because your cost of capital is higher. So that's the big picture view. What does that mean for our space? You know, I, I'm the eternal optimist to discount what I'm about to say accordingly, but you know, my view is that. You know, the, the thing that I love that we've sort of built our thesis around at Outside Capital about, about outdoor hospitality and glamping is that this space really does offer a, what I think is a, a, a risk adjusted return opportunity that you can't get in traditional hospitality. And on top of that, we also as an industry benefit from some really powerful industry tailwinds that I don't think are necessarily applicable to the hotel industry writ large. So what does that mean? I think the reality is that for most entrepreneurs in the glamping space or in you know, investment players, I actually don't know if the landscape has changed all that much because, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the trends I just described that the hotel industry is grappling with now are sort of challenges that alternative accommodation investors, like in the glamping world have actually grappled with for a long time. Talk, you know, if you talk to 10. 10 would-be developers or investors in glamping, I'm, I would bet you that seven or eight of them are sort of seeking a business plan that involves no debt financing because it's just, just wasn't available, right? So 
Yeah, th I guess there's a few different ways to that, but I would say overall, the reality is that we are in a tougher market than we were in a year ago. The reality is that capital is more expensive and less available overall than it was a year ago. But I think that you know, those challenges probably aren't new. And in terms of how that trickles down to the average investor in our space, I think we're, people have to deal with the same problems we've always had to deal with. But we have the benefit of a really powerful, compelling macro story that is reflected in you know, everything that Whitney just said and what you were saying before, Ruben, about the just continued level of interest from the consumer in the space, which is the most important thing. And for those of you, Ruben, obviously, if you have any follow-up questions, go for it. Or Connor, if you want to input. But for Whitney and Kate, who are here just for the first time here, it is but a casual open discussion. So if you guys want to throw any comments in or go back and forth or okay. continue a conversation, feel free to at any point. Typically, okay. we just solve all the glamping problems all within one. In one evening that's, session, yeah. That's the expert. Where have you guys been for the last 13 years? <laughs> Solving, be, we've been here. Now, now you're rock out. <laughs> We just didn't have an internet connection with video. Well, similar problems here in the UK with, with land, the value of land has skyrocketed in the last 18 months and clients are finding it harder to get finance as well. So many projects are dropping out. People can't get the finance and the bill costs have gone up as well. Material costs have gone up. So especially you know, like cabins and tree houses, uh, that, that end of the market, you know, they're not getting as much for their money as they would have done beforehand. And some people are just dropping out altogether. And others are sticking with it and shaving off costs where they can to still get the build through. There's certainly some parallels between the two markets. And I wonder, you know, something that's interesting too, is we're helping people out with their, I mean, a lot of these plans to you know, what David had mentioned too, and everybody on this call has seen significantly is, you know, the level of whatever is launching today was pre-baked years ago. So a lot of these operations just take such a long time, right? To get in the best of situations, just take a while to get up and running. So it's been interesting trying to think through and finagle and predict in a crystal ball, you know, if a project is going to take three years to get up and running, some type of the contingency budget, cost of materials two years from now, cost yeah. of borrowing two years from now. So it's one thing to have a holistic plan, but knowing yeah. that plan is going to take several years. I think what's interesting, I just hadn't really seen this in years past because of the just overall volatility and everything that David so eloquently said. It's one thing to lay it out, but knowing that it's going to be a three-year project, what are some of those swings in costs two or three years down the road? Because we can guess, but who knows what that's going to yeah. look like. And I've seen people have a lot more trouble with that definition than I have in the past, especially some larger scale projects that just take years. So what's yeah. the cost of lumber in 2025? And that could be the difference between hundreds of thousands of dollars you know, within yeah. each one. How do you attempt to forecast that though? Uh, and I don't know, Whitney, you have some insight to share into that because you have so much experience with so many different properties. Uh, or if you want to, even you don't have to. Ruben is speaking from my cards. If I had them, it's, you know, especially within the last couple of years, I don't think there could have been a crystal ball to project. You know, if you had, were thinking about coming into the glamping industry in 2019 and what your projections were then for build out class to what they are now, whether it, you're not, you're buying them a dome or a cabin and their increased costs versus 
the infrastructure that you're going to have to put onto the property itself, you know, you're, we're seeing double to triple the cost of what we would have projected back in 2019. And I don't know if we could have foreseen that, you know, the, whether it was the war in Ukraine, COVID, supply chains, inflation, you know, there's just been such a macro impact on development costs that I no no contingency budget could have absorbed, which is causing a lot of reality, you know, re- to the point that, you know, Kate was making is stepping back, reevaluating, you know, are people sca- scaling down potential? It's, you've got to reassess how to move forward if your initial plan was somewhere back in 2018 or 2020. Positive is that the market is still very much there. People want to travel and they want to go glamping and it's only continuing. It's just making sure to us at least, where do we fit in, whether that's at Kway Campgrounds or with Tiramore as it expands and making very hard and pivotal decisions on where it makes business sense. I think that what I'm advising some of my clients to do when they're in that situation though is to actually upscale their business model and their offer and really drill down to make it an experience-led accommodation. So we pay more attention on the interior design. We pay more attention on the landscaping and, and up, we elevate the experience. And by doing that, we then can charge higher rental revenues and get more occupancy rates. We can claw back some of those additional costs in that way. But I mean, yeah, it's just sort of one idea really. So if anybody's listening and they're thinking it's costing me so much money, how on earth am I going to, you know, get my projected rental revenues back is just scale it all up in terms of the experience that you're going to offer. You don't necessarily have to throw bundles of money at it either. I mean, I was out at a, an auction today looking for items to furnish some cabins and it just takes a little bit more time sometimes probably you know, I, I'm talking about very sort of small-scale clients here, not 15, 20 units. But you can really drill down and offer a, a, a more immersive experience and something very authentic, and people will pay more money for that. Yeah, experiential hospitality is another name for it, yes. Yeah, yeah. Or the uniqueness yeah. of your property and, yeah. lack of a better word, the experiences you're providing. Yeah, it doesn't seem to have people. I think I can add on to it, and I guess to provide a bit of context for the listeners, myself and my team at Sage, we were in the business of feasibility studies and appraisals for typically launching outdoor hospitality businesses. So glamping, RV and camping. And we're usually writing anywhere from four to eight feasibility studies a month. And that is, you know, we're projecting their costs, projecting the cost of capital, operating expenses and revenue to build on what everyone was saying. I think on the one hand, you have cost of materials and cost of capital has gone way up, but on the flip side of that, you know, as what Whitney was saying is demand and nightly rates in the space are still at an all-time high. And so that's balancing out. I would say a lot of the returns that we're seeing on projects are less than they were 12 months ago, but still great projects. And I'd be curious to hear whatever, you know, what the rest of the panel is seeing in terms of activity in the space. But for us at Sage, interest has never been higher, both from small mom and pop entrepreneurs to, you know, some bigger players getting into the space and having some big visions and big projects in mind. I'm probably looking at anywhere from four to five new projects a week that we're listening to that are coming to us with an interest of getting capitalized. And so the activity in the space for us has never been higher. And for the most part, 
you know, access to private and lending capital seems to have been there, at least in the projects that, that we've been working on. So there's these different forces happening in the market, but from our perspective and a lot of the service providers that we work on the architecture and the zoning permission side, I've heard similar stories that, you know, they can barely keep up with demand. And I would just be curious what the rest of the panel is seeing. Don't all yeah, I, mean, I, I echo all of that. And I think the answer to Brian's question about uh, projecting lumber costs or other commodities is that if you could do that accurately, you should probably working on a trading floor on Wall Street and not in the glamping industry because you, you'll, you'll make a lot of money. If you have your own retirement account. Well, you don't want to share that with anybody on the trading floor. Yeah, that's a good point. But no, I think that's right. That's another, that is for sure another force that is at play across all this stuff. And I don't think that you can't, you just can't face your budget on sort of speculation about, you know, where lumber is going to be a year from now. It's no one knows, right? I mean, no, no, no one can, no one really knows. I think the only thing you can really do is budget appropriately. You know, you can build in healthy contingencies, escalation allowances, and hope for the best. But to Whitney's point, sometimes even that's not enough. And you just, you have to be flexible enough to be able to adapt. I think one of the cool things about glamping and outdoor hospitality is that you often do have more levers that you can pull to value engineer are in a tough spot than you do in traditional commercial real estate, right? I mean, we're not, it's less, it's not simple, but it's certainly less technical than building an 80 floor skyscraper if you, where if you blow out your budget, you, you may be able to value engineer, but you probably can't just decide to not build the top 10 floors. You can do that in a lot of these outdoor hospitality projects, which I think is another advantage that this sector has in a market of, you know, uncertainty around, you know, critical cost inputs. The other thing that I've seen a lot that I'd be curious about Whitney's take or can't any, anyone's take on is that the problem I've seen across a lot of these projects is not just the cost of input, but also availability of labor. And I think that's something that I think Ruben, you've talked about before. A lot of the markets that these projects work well in also tend to be places where you may not have a deep pool of specialized contractors for, you know, whatever discipline you're working on. And that can be a challenge because, you know, if you just have one and then you get to that point in the project where it's time to engage your electrical subcontractor or whatever, and they're gone because there was more business to be done somewhere nearby, that's like a, that can be a binary problem that you may not even be able to solve by throwing money at it. Yeah. And even, I mean, just to that point, and obviously whoever wants to jump, my, my just brief perspective on that labor side is super interesting when it comes to the planning execution and success of an operation, because the good and bad, you know, it's almost like the, the, the positive is the negative in certain ways in these operations, because the main positive is that a lot of these properties are in just beautiful out in the middle of nowhere yet remote locations, right? That's why people want to go there, right? But then what that also means is that the availability of not only finding and attracting the right labor pool, but then keeping them. And then even if you find them to your point, David, they might, there might be another job, you know, somewhere down the road that just pays more or they're 
you know, they're trying to manage multiple projects because they bit off more that they can chew. There's so many complications now with that. And it has a lot to do with, I think, location, right? If you're in the, if you're in the city and you've got a little bit more access to talent pool, that doesn't become as much of an issue, but because of the location, just keeping and attracting, not only during the development side, but then also the day-to-day operations, it's still unpredictable, you know, unfortunately. And I don't think that there's a magic, you know, one that we can wave yet to solve that for things to really tamper down. And even the stories that we keep hearing of, you know, literally construction crews and contractors walking off jobs and not taking payment because they've got some lucrative opportunity in another state or whatnot. I mean, it's still very interesting. And, you know, I think those that can, is an advantage for those that have found them and keep them, you know, they're already now, I think that's the other key to it is that they become ahead of the game and they can use that as their secret sauce in a way, but those that can't, it's a struggle, right? It's it's not something that's, you know, easily solved. I think what I'm taking away from what both of you are saying is that if you're planning on starting a glamping business anytime in the next 20 years, you should buy a couple hundred acres of forest land so you can control the price of lumber. And you should start specialized K through 12 educational schools so you can raise your own people. And then they feel guilty if they leave to go to another state. Yeah, this is why we wanted to, you know, start the glamping university. That way people would just get their glamping internships and then it makes the perfect. You just need apprenticeship, a couple apprenticeships and you're done. We've solved it. This show is really valuable, Ruben. Look at that. Yeah. Another problem solved. Just like that. Go ahead. So where have you guys been for the last 13 years? I. We I need mean, apparently team. not, not buying forests and not training kids the right way. That's where we've been. Hey team, I'm going to have to jump off. Brian, is there anything else for me before I hop? I mean, there's always something more from you, Connor, but no, thank you. I appreciate your time today. All right. Pleasure to see you all. Thanks everyone. Yes, Connor. Okay. So that was a good segue to let Connor leave. I didn't know that was going to happen, but well, I'll take the credit for that. What else do we have from a serious perspective that we want to, is there any follow on for what Ruben's saying from anyone? I, you know, I just agree so much on that, that it's not just the actual products that are inflating costs, but that acquisition process of construction is gaming difficulty. You know, glamping is harder market to get contractors to the points of where we're putting them. You know, they're, they have to drive two hours when they can take a job that's right in their neighborhood, you know, and, and the more remote we go, the harder it is to build. And you're going to, you're going to pay for it if you can find it. And then you better keep them happy or they're just going to leave. So it's hard. And the same employee stuff happens from, you know, once you get operating is it's the same issues as you've got to play a good wage. And then you also have to provide a service to keep them there. You know, employee housing in general in some of these areas where we're put outdoor resorts and glamping resorts are continually hard to get workforce because there's not housing in the areas. And, you know, a pivotal piece of understanding your operational costs is are you going to How's your employees? And is that part of your development? And are you thinking about that? Because if you're not, you potentially could have the most beautiful resort ever. But if you can't staff it, your experience potential set is going to be very minimal. And what we're finding is that employee housing piece is a top two 
request of employees is not only do you have it, but I want to see it before I even agree. You know, I want pictures. Yeah. It is a, it is an interesting question. And obviously what I said was just a joke, but it really, if you take a lesson from that, you're talking about the glamping university, Ruben, but if you take a lesson from, we, we have a fourth week of the show here is focused on the RV industry. And we talked to them about their initiatives recently from RVDA and from the RV technical Institute to train technicians who are certified to repair RVs. And so they're making a big push toward this of having local classes and recruiting people and talking about the benefits and all those kinds of things. Is there a market like that where we can try to recruit more people who work exclusively in the glamping space? We were going to do through the association, we have a partnership with the university where we can create kind of a certificate and we were going to do it more for members to have more of a kind of in-depth training away for them, you know, for the glamping show, for example, you get some great information for a few days, but then, you know, we're skinning the surface a little bit versus going and maybe deep dive into certain topics. And we floated it to a few operators into our board and whatnot, just to give some feedback. And what was interesting is that, you know, we haven't done it yet and it's, we haven't moved it forward, but the opportunity is always there. But the feedback was actually from some of these operators who have multiple sites. They said, man, if I, they basically said, I would pay whatever it takes to have some version where our general managers specifically can be trained. And even if they're coming from an entry-level position and then they work their way up to be the general manager, because, you know, from their perspective, they often have to retrain them, right? Because maybe they're coming from the hotel world or maybe they're coming from a different, you know, hospitality asset class, which is similar, but just different. And so that was an interesting feedback that general managers and, and that, that, that role specifically, you know, there's a need for maybe more unique outdoor hospitality nuances that they're not getting, you know, from other jobs. Do you have any thoughts on that before I, cause I have one question to pose about it, but I don't want to spin it to what we're going to do at the end of the show. If somebody has another valuable content or a comment about that. You got okay. Have you far away, David? No, so I'm, I was, I'm probably going to say something less intelligent than Kate was going to say, but I think that it's funny when you zoom out on this topic, I feel like the glamping industry, all these, you know, all these issues that we're talking about, I think as the glamping industry gets more sophisticated and there's more, you know, there's more sophisticated brands like what Whitney's team is building and, you know, larger scale properties, projects, all of these problems that we're discussing, you know, it's like the glamping industry starting to look a lot more like the hotel industry in the sense that, you know, we're constrained by some really big picture topics, supply chain, labor, labor availability, zoning and land use. You know, these are all things that, if, you know, any hotel, any kind of tenured hotel operator will tell you that they've been battling with for, you know, for as long as the industry has existed in its modern form. And so I think, you know, what are the answers or what are the, you know, what are some of the other underlying dimensions of these problems? You know, you can, to, if you really want to zoom out and think about that, look at what happened to the hotel industry. You know, there was this massive exodus of entry-level, line-level employees from that industry when COVID began. People basically just moved on. The whole hotel industry has, has struggled in the, you know, in the last 18 plus months in the real kind of 
part of the recovery phase to find those, to get those employees back because they've moved on and they're doing other things. And so I think when you think about some of these problems, you know, I don't know, there's definitely no silver bullet answer for sure, but I think that you can look to the hotel industry, I think, to try and maybe find some hints about, you know, where some of the answers lie. And I think staff housing, as Whitney said, is obviously a really important part of the solution and you know, ask any GM of a remote luxury resort about how critical that is to, you know, to keep the property staff. It's really important. There's other creative things that people are thinking about, like the J1 visa program, which the ski industry has used for a long time to find seasonal employees for, you know, for their businesses, you know, I, just to give a quick shout out to a, an organization that I'm a huge supporter of, there's a nonprofit called Syra Hospitality, which is doing incredible work in the hotel industry, trying to link hotel operations businesses with, with disenfranchised or sort of underprivileged community, urban communities by creating pop-up training schools to try and provide a, you know, new kind of creative source of committed, motivated people to join their businesses. I mean, like I said, I don't think there's a silver bullet, but it's, I do think it's interesting that you can look over at the hotel resort world for, you know, maybe some of the, you know, some of the hits of solutions that are out there. So here's my question and it, and I'm going to keep with this topic for a second before I focus on what I was going to do in the last five minutes of the show, but it is somewhat related. I'm going to share my screen here and toggle this on. All of you have probably heard of ChatGPT and some of these AI tools that are available to us. But my question is, is does tools like this help change the education and the ability of people to learn more faster? So you can see while I was, while you guys were talking, I was typing in this thing. I have 20 years of experience in hospitality, mostly for chain hotels like Marriott and Hyatt. How would I translate my customer service skills into working for a campground? Describe some of the nuances and ways I could learn to be an excellent team member at a campground. And you can literally put this in here and it will spit out an answer. And does this help then someone translate careers or if they want to be involved more in outdoor hospitality and nature and glamping, quickly figure out some of the ways that they can be adaptable and be more employable to a resort that we're talking about? I think this changes the game as far as how quickly you can learn some of these dynamics and the specificities you can provide. Am I wrong? I, no, I mean, I think that there's definitely value. There's a lot of value that comes with AI. But I think what, you know, Google Bard just did, you know, is that you also have to have, you know, some background ground of knowledge or have, you know, a framework of your own understanding to make sure that, you know, you're not taking everything as fact or that it's completely right. So there's, you know, there's still a human factor of consideration as you look at technology like this and how it's implemented, you know, AI or chatbots have been around from a hospitality perspective for a few years. And I think we've, as a hospitality industry, we've gotten better with them. But there always had to be the human component in the background, whether it's with your bank or with your glamping resort. There's a moment where you're like, I need a person. So yeah. there's just, I think that there's just that a always be there balance. Yeah. Yeah. That will always be there. I think you're very right. I don't think that 
changes, whether you've got an AI chat bot or a chat GPT, or a, I'm looking through 10 blue links, which one is real and which one's not. Yeah. But yeah, I agree with you. There's always definitely, I don't think I'm saying for this as somebody who just gets hired and then bothers to research or bothers to ask questions during the course of their position. But is there a way somebody can use this to level up some of the skills necessary to enter into outdoor hospitality from a basic skill set of I've already got this customer service knowledge or something similar? I totally think so. I mean, why not use the tools that you have access to? And this is a great example. That's my I think maybe the more, I think, I mean, if you just look at that list, it, I mean, it's kind of, it's just a bunch of like pretty vague truisms about, you know, how you can be a good employee. Like, I think the more interesting intersection point or potential intersection point from my point of view regarding technology and the way that you can use it to perhaps solve some of these issues is to think about how you can use, think about it from the other point of view. So like how, not like how can employees use technology to access jobs or be better employees, but you know, what can these, how can these businesses use technology to better serve their guests in a, yeah. in a labor efficient way? And I mean, this again, like not to keep parking back to the hotel industry, but that's also another trend that, or another tool that the hotel world has tried to use. I mean, there's tons of properties now where you check in and the concierge is accessible by a text message. And, you know, the operator on the other end of the text message may not be in the hotel. They may be in a kind of central facility somewhere responding to text messages from 25 other hotels. And so you completely sidestepped the labor availability constraint in whatever market you're in. But I agree with Whitney and you, Brian, I think technology has to be a part of the solution to this problem, but I think it's sort of more incumbent on the operator side to use it, to address the problem. I absolutely agree with you. And I normally wouldn't have brought this up, but it's going to flow right into the conversation here is that this is something that we just built for very HRV resort in Arizona. It's the first thing that we've ever done or the know of that's ever been used at a campground anywhere in the world or an RV resort. And it's full AI. It's connected to the same engine that ChatGPT is from OpenAI. And it can answer literally any question about the resort. And they can have 24-7 customer service. You can do it in natural language. It's not, you know, programming anything to where the customer has to act and ask an exact phrase. And I'm not going to spend too much time on it because again, I don't publish or promote some of the things that I do, but I think that very well disagree with me if you want, fits into the conversation that you're talking about as far as operators using technology for their side. Is that fair? Or yeah. I mean, I think correct? overhead costs are, you know, you can't, you, it's very difficult. You can't, anyone can do anything, but it's very difficult to staff customer service around the clock. But you know, the reality is that Mom, you know, mom might be the only time she has to plan a vacation is at two in the morning. You know, technology, it's back to David's point. Technology is how you can integrate it into your operations to help, you know, the customer find what customer experience at large. And, you know, I think that there are just a multiple multitude of technologies that really help us as operators provide the next step in guest experience that doesn't require a ton of overhead. So those type of things are monumental for businesses to look at 
to integrate into their operations. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to me just, and obviously I started researching this as a, you know, how can we do a regular chat bot and just get it to answer questions. But I learned as the course of, we came up with literally 1700 different data sets that we programmed this thing with, and I spent 60 dedicated hours on it. We're learning, these are things you can't fit on a website and put all that in a frequently asked questions. As we know from dealing with campgrounds and the guests of those campgrounds, nobody reads the sheet that's put in front of them as, with the terms and conditions of the hours or any, right? I mean, probably one person does. Eventually we'll find them. But so I think that there's a whole lot of benefits to utilizing technology like this. And certainly I'm not the only person who can do it, but I think it's very exciting to see that, especially when we're in rural areas with staffing issues, how we can help alleviate some of these issues by using technology like this. And it saves money, potentially a lot. Don't all talk. I, I think, you know, to, to wrap it up, I mean, there's still a lot that we have to see how it integrates and what. For sure. Yeah. Nobody's saying everybody do this tomorrow, but we're having a conversation. I'm only bringing it up because David brought it up from a yeah. flipping it around standpoint. The, and I was only bringing it up because you brought it. That's <laughs> right. I'll take the blame for it. I think we're no, a bit we, still the old-fashioned that over here in the UK is we like to talk to people and I like I get the idea of an FAQ and what have you, but there are some business models over here that remain staunchly old-fashioned about being able to talk to somebody at the end of the phone if you have a question and that's part of their USP and part of their customer service and part of their business model and that then I... I know some clients of mine that will not budge from that. They'll probably have an FAQ and what have you, but I know I find those, unless it's a really finely tuned question and answer thing, I find when I've tried to use them, I don't get the answers to the questions I need and I get quite frustrated. Uh, and yeah, I feel sure. it's a little bit too impersonal and I'm being fogged off by a an AI thing, whereas actually I'd really quite like to talk to somebody. So I think if your business model suits that and you can get the right, Q and A's going, then fine. But it, uh, certainly over here in the UK, it would possibly alienate some people. Yeah, uh, I for sure uh, agree with it's you. It's been really interesting tonight for me listening to you guys because you you always have quite a different market over there. It's much bigger and scales bigger, whereas here in Britain, it's still a reasonably sort of small scale in terms of the the number of accommodations or having, and it's still very much. I've written it down here and I've underlined it lifestyle it is a lifestyle industry here at the indie boutique end of the sector and it's only just start to get on a big scale in the holiday parks and things like that where they'll put you know 10 or 15 pods or 20 alternative lodges or something it's really different we've got quite a different market i think between the two countries yeah and i think i agree we're a little bit over so we got to wrap it up here but i think i agree with everything you said like i'm not advocating for taking the human out of the component advocating for a supplement to you know hey okay here's what the chat bot can answer and it's had 1700 questions and answers so it has been fine-tuned but i think that's the idea is to okay let's give you the basic information and connect you with that human level person yeah. who can talk on the phone or answer an email or be but yeah does anybody else have anything to add before we wrap up the show here it was a great conversation. I really appreciate you all being here. Whitney, thank you for taking time out of your very busy day. Thanks for having me. About Terramore and Kate, thank you for joining us again from the UK. So late, Connor here who had to jump off, but always his insight is valuable. And obviously Ruben and David, we thank you for being returning guests of the show. But any final thoughts before we wrap it up? Nope, all right. good. Enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you guys. I really appreciate you joining us and we'll see you next week for another episode. 
Thanks for watching this episode of MC Fireside Chats, hosted by Brian Searle and Kara Sismadia. Have a suggestion for a future show or want to see your campground or company as part of an episode? Email us at hello at moderncampground.com. Join us next week for another episode. And don't miss the latest outdoor hospitality news and commentary from around the world at moderncampground.com.